1 Corinthians 4:18 to 5:13, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me um, as we do this morning. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God to pour out the Holy Spirit on us as His Word is preached, that we might benefit um, maximally from the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do bow before you, and we do ask that you would do a great work among us, even from a portion of scripture that might otherwise seem um, less uh, desirable to be read and heard and preached. We know, O oh God, that this is your word, that you have given it, that every a word has been breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, our God, we pray that you would pour out the Holy Spirit, that you would cause him to come like a rushing, mighty wind from heaven, and that he would move in this place in the souls of the men and the women and the boys and the girls present here. We pray, our God, that we would know that we have met with you and that we would hear your voice and that you would speak to the consciences and the hearts and the minds of the people who are here present. Father, do this for your great namesake, for the well-being of your church and for our joy and building up in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but the power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you want? Do you want me to come to you with a rod, or in a spirit of love and gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among Gentiles, pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present with you in spirit. And as at present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name, in my name, sorry, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I don't know how much you keep up with what's going on in the church at large. I don't know how much you read 
uh, on the internet, how much you listen to on the radio and sermons on podcasts. But the issue of church discipline, which is what 1 Corinthians 5 sets out, is actually a very pressing issue right now for the church of Jesus Christ. There are large churches. There is one very large church that has recently had a pastor come out and say that he would allow homosexuals to serve uh, communion in their services and to be active members because it's not, it's not so much that Jesus cared about arguing over doctrine, he cared about love. And it's become a very common thing for churches to say the Christian community is not to judge in any way, not to pronounce any kind of judgment whatsoever, and that we ought to be accepting of all. We ought to have as wide an open door on the front end and as closed a back door on the tail end. That everyone ought to be able to come in, and just as you are and just as you will ever be, you are to live in the church accepted and loved and approved and embraced in the church of Jesus. Now... Here's the danger with this. There is an enormous measure of truth that the church is to be loving and welcoming and accepting. I would argue the front door should be kicked wide open and the back door should be kicked wide open. The front door should be kicked open. The back door should be kicked open. That's what Paul's actually going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the classical text in which Paul is going to set out what is called church discipline. Um, It was common for a lot of the reformers to talk about the marks of a church, what makes a true church. And the Belgic Confession actually says that it is the pure preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and that it is church discipline. The church discipline is a fundamental, elemental aspect of what a true church is and ought to do. Now, people don't like the word discipline in our day. It sounds restrictive. It sounds cold. It sounds clinical. People think about the, the things in here, and they think, well, you guys are like Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, the court in the Salem Witch Trials, and Hester Prynne. You just want to go around, and you want to sew a big A on everybody who commits adultery. And you just want to tag them and smear their reputation in the mud. That's not what Paul's saying. There are nuances here. There are important nuances. There's a reason why Paul says what he says about church discipline. There's a reason why Jesus, in Matthew 18, instituted church discipline. There's a reason why Jesus gave us the steps. If a brother sins, you go to your brother privately. Tell him your fault. If he doesn't repent, you take two or three. If he doesn't hear them, you take him to the church. If he doesn't hear the church, you excommunicate. You put him out of communion. There's a reason why the king of the church said that. And so this morning we're going to see four things. Paul is going to, in many respects, take a filter of Old Testament Israel and the Passover and the idea of Israel as the camp of the Lord. And he's going to throw that over what's happening in Corinth. And we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see the need to purge the camp. Secondly, we're going to see the danger of tolerating sin in the camp. Thirdly, the consecration of the camp. And fourth, our attitude toward those inside and outside the camp. The need to purge the camp, the danger of tolerating sin in the camp, the consecration of the camp, and our attitude toward those inside and outside the camp. Well, notice at the end of chapter 4, verse 18, Paul has been dealing now shifting gears from where he's been with the Corinthians. They have, they have had a lot of gifts, and they've taken those gifts, and they've wanted to be worldly with them. They've wanted to be a, a worldly institution with great speakers and, and worldly wisdom and worldly knowledge. And Paul now says to them, listen, I am the apostle that planted this church. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come see you. 
it is necessary that I deal with these issues for you and walk you through these things. But notice what Paul says there. He says in verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now, Paul is not saying the kingdom is not built on word and a word centered ministry. That would be Paul contradicting himself elsewhere. Paul is saying the kingdom is not built on human eloquence and wisdom of word and rhetoric, but in the power of changed lives. That if you want to know if you're in God's kingdom, if you want to know whether you've had your heart changed by the gospel, has your life reflected the power of that gospel transforming you and the people around you? And so Paul says, listen, I want to see the power. I want to see the power of changed lives. And Paul has heard that lives don't look like they've been changed. Notice verse 1. He says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of such a kind that's not even named among the Gentiles. Now, the church in Corinth, they had told Paul all these things that were going on. There's division. This guy has been sleeping with his stepmother. There's all kinds of infighting and bickering. There is mixing with the world. There is marrying unbelievers. There is eating in pagan temples and compromising to agree. There's all these things happening in Corinth as this new fledgling church is growing. And Paul comes in and has to deal with these issues systematically. And the first issue he has to deal with after the division, once you get the unity of the body down, you deal with the issues in the body. And Paul says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality being tolerated among you and of such a kind that even the Gentiles, even those that don't have a God, would be ashamed of and would not approve, even if they did it. And notice that this is a difficult passage because in verse 1 we're told that there was a man in Corinth. We don't know if he was influential. We don't know anything about this man. We know nothing about his father. We don't know whether his father was alive. We don't know who this woman was. Almost all commentators, because it doesn't say a man has his mother, a man has his father's wife, are going to agree that this was his stepmother. Now, it's likely that maybe the father had died and maybe this man had married her or maybe she was a concubine. We don't know all the details. In any case, the scriptures would have forbidden that sort of incestuous relationship that a man marry his father's wife. There's a reason for that. In the Old Testament, you'll see all the laws of nakedness and sexual purity. The reason for these laws is because this man's father's sexual life was to be guarded, was to be covered, as it were. Remember with Noah, when Noah's nakedness was uncovered, and his one son came in and saw it and mocked him and told his brothers, and God cursed that son. There ought to be a privacy about our sexual life and our life lived in union with our spouses. And so Paul says, listen, that what this man was doing, that even pagans, even Gentiles would know that that's wrong. They would know that that's wrong for him to do that sort of thing. They may do it, but notice in verse 2 that there's a problem in the camp. And as Paul calls the Corinthians to purge the camp, it seems that he actually says that they are boastful of having this man in their congregation. He said, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be mourning? Instead, notice in verse 6, your boasting is not good. 
So maybe it was that the church was growing at an alarming rate. Maybe it was because of the eloquent orders they had, because they had Apollos, because they had all these great speakers that people were coming to hear. And as they grew, yeah, they were getting mixture, and they even had this guy over here who was doing this perverse thing. And as that church grew, they were boasting about what they were. And Paul's like, how can you boast about what you are when you're not even dealing with the sin in the camp? When you're not even living the way you ought to be living as a church of Jesus Christ, tolerating the slightest impurity and imperfection known in the lives of a believer in this open sin. Now, Paul is going to go on to tell them in verses 3 through 5 that before Jesus and with him present in spirit under apostolic authority, the church is to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And then notice in verse 12, he will say, I'm sorry, in verse um, in verse 13, he will quote Deuteronomy several places, purge the evil person from among you. Now, if you went back to Deuteronomy and you read the five or six times that that occurred, it's really interesting that in each of those cases, it was the death penalty. It was the death penalty, and it was for adultery, and it was for sorcery, and it was for drunkard rebellion, and it was for all of these sins that Paul will actually list here, but for the New Covenant Church that's not a theocracy, that doesn't have a civil law, that gets applied spiritually in the case of church discipline. It still needs to be dealt with. In the Old Covenant, civilly, Israel as a nation state was to put away, through death penalty, the evil person. In the New Covenant, the church is to excommunicate someone that's unrepentant, living in these sins. Now, let me raise a couple dangers here, because I think... Church discipline is one of those things that is not often practiced in the 21st century church. And so it's often neglected, much to the hurt and shame of the church. But where it's practiced, it's often abused. Let me say that again. Church discipline is often neglected in the majority of Christian churches around the world today, much to the hurt and shame of those churches But church discipline, where it is carried out, is often abused. Paul is not saying, let's be quick to uproot all the tares and drive everybody out of the church at every point. Let's be as heavy-handed as we can. We've got to deal with this right now. This had been sin that had been known about. Notice that this came to Paul's ears. It was so widespread what this man had done. It was so public and it was so known that this man wasn't repenting that it even came to Paul in prison. Paul wasn't even there, and Paul heard about this man, and he heard that the church wasn't dealing with this, and that the church was tolerating sin in the camp. Now, remember the sin of Achan in the camp. Achan, Joshua 7, stole a little gold, hid it under his tent. Remember, God deals with that. God narrows down the tribes, narrows down the families, down to Achan and his family until he's removed from the camp. God is more committed to the purification of his church than you could imagine. God will not be mocked. God's church will be a pure church. It will be a holy church. It is a church of people that have been redeemed from their sin, not to live in sin. And yet, and yet, there's a measure of patience and wisdom. Church discipline is always to be restorative. Notice that Paul says, actually, there in verse 4, It's very difficult, actually, verses to interpret. When you're assembled together in the name of the Lord, 
Jesus and my spirit's present in the power of our Lord Jesus. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, commentators are divided on what that means, the flesh and the spirit. Does he mean destruction of the flesh from the midst of the assembly? Does he mean the destruction of this man's fleshly nature? Does he mean the destruction of his body? Is there a judgment that would fall on this man once he's put out of the church? I take the latter, actually. I think there is. I think once a person is excommunicated, once a person is put out of fellowship, there ceases to be this covenantal protection for that person. This is not a joke. God tells us later in this book that people that took the Lord's Supper without examining the body and did it sinfully, some of them were weak and ill and some of them died. They fell asleep. They, They were killed because they despised the holy things of the Lord. And they didn't care about him being honored and his church being protected and the camp being purified. Now, but notice, and this is where I want to raise a caution, that church discipline is not to be carried out overly hastily. It's not to be carried out on those who repent of sin. Had this man repented? Had this man mourned over his sin? You wouldn't have an example of church discipline. You may have suspension from the table. You may have some sort of uh, oversight from elders, making sure that this person really is repentant. But the goal of church discipline is, yes, purification, but it is also restoration. And notice Paul almost senses, I see in this, a hope that this man will be restored. Notice what he says. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, and I read into that, That if it be possible, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That that man would suffer under the the hand of Satan. That he would suffer afflictions and difficulties not having the gracious protection of the Lord. And that he would see his need for Christ and he would return to Christ. I think it's interesting that in 2 Corinthians, I do believe the man there to receive back, lest he have too much sorrow, is this man. That in this case, that man did repent. I'm hopeful that that's the case, that in the one example of church discipline, other than God killing Ananias and Sapphira, this man did repent. Now, the question is, why? Why is this so important? Why is it so important that this happened? Well, I think there's a danger. There's a danger in tolerating sin in the camp. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Um, The point is, when sin is tolerated in a church, that sin will spread like leaven. Bad company will corrupt good morals. And those who are otherwise walking with the Lord will be tempted to make light of sin. Because that's in all of us by nature. What's in you by nature is to make light of your sin. What's in me by nature is to make light of my sin. And what's in us by nature is to look at others who are living worse than us that make us feel better about ourselves or who make us feel better about the sin that we wish we could live in if others didn't know that we were living in it. And so when sin is tolerated in the camp, Paul says it has an inevitable effect of corrupting the camp, that it spreads like yeast, quickly, pervasively. You know what? Church history proves this. Just read, read about church history. Why systematically... Does every church that starts out strong end up apostatizing? There's no, there is no church that has remained pure throughout all of New Testament church history. I think it's because at some point churches start tolerating. They, they shut the back door. 
They kicked the front door open. They said, come on in, everybody. We love everybody. We tolerate everything. They compromise with the world. They compromise with doctrine. They compromise with moral living. And the church fails to be the church, and then God judges the church. And listen, Paul says it is our responsibility for the purification of the church and to guard against these dangers. Notice what he says in verse 12. Is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? Now, this does raise a bit of a dilemma because Paul has said back in chapter 4, I don't even judge myself and let nobody judge me and don't judge anything before the time. And now he says, isn't it the church's job to judge those in the church? Well, I think what Paul means is when there are open manifestations of wickedness, when there is sin that is open and known to others, greed and covetousness and pride, that those things are to be dealt with. Sexual immorality, they're not to be tolerated. The elders and the people have a job of nurturing people in the church and building each other up and purposefully pressing each other on in holiness. And so the danger is, that those who are walking with the Lord would be influenced by those who are not. There's a proverb I used to read and think about a lot. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for by way of the wicked he will be led astray. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for by way of the wicked he will be led astray. That's what Paul's saying. The church should be a church of people walking uprightly. Church of people repenting of their sins. A church of sinners. A church of people admitting they are sinners. Admitting they're not good people in themselves. Admitting that they have weaknesses and faults, but repenting of those weaknesses and faults. Confessing those to the Lord. Striving against them. Being gracious. Yes, being gracious with each other. Hoping for restoration. Praying for healing and for wellness and goodness. Not judging self-righteously. Not judging self-righteously, judging with righteous judgment, judging according to God's standard and his word. And so there's a great danger of tolerating sin in the camp. And Paul emphasizes that. Now, thirdly, and most importantly, and I really want to emphasize this this morning, Paul tells us about the consecration of the camp. Um, Is it because... We decide, I'm going to fix my life, I'm going to get my act together, clean up, pull myself up by the bootstraps, do a better job, make a 180, and just and get over these bad habits, and, and start making good habits, and is, is that why we have this? Is that why the camp is consecrated? No, Paul says, listen, notice verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, that whole imagery of the leaven comes from Exodus 12. Israel was to have seven days of feast. They were to put away all leavened bread on the first day. They were to have unleavened bread for seven days. The Passover was killed. The lamb was killed. The blood was put on the doorpost. They were remembering God's redemption. God passes over in judgment when he sees the blood. The leaven and the unleaven are denoting holiness and impurity, just like leprosy as a, as a disease in the gospel spread and was reminiscent of the leprosy of sin. So the leaven that Israel was to put away ceremonially on that first day was a picture of uncleanness, of the all pervasiveness of sin. They were to eat leavened bread as a picture of what they would get 
in the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb that would pardon and would cleanse and would pass over and would provide atonement and would be for redemption from that sin. And notice what Paul does. Paul says, listen, there's another problem in the church. Here's the answer. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's the reason you're unleavened. That's the reason the church is what the church is. It's the only reason the church is what the church is. The only reason you are, if you are a believer, if you are clean in Christ, the only reason you are unleavened in Christ is because he went to Calvary, because not a bone was broken, because he was dealt with and sacrificed up to God as a lamb without blemish and without spot, that he became a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God the Father, and the wrath of God was propitiated, and God passed over you for all eternity and received you to, to, yourself through the, to himself through that lamb. And Paul says that that's the reason, at the heart of the holiness of the church is the sacrifice of Jesus. At the heart of the purity of the church is the sacrifice of Jesus. At the heart of the godliness of the church is the sacrifice of Jesus. At the heart of church discipline in the church is the sacrifice of Jesus. That's why the camp is pure. That's, by the way, the only thing that makes the difference between the church and the world is not you and your holiness. That's not what makes the difference. It's the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. The greater exodus who through his death and resurrection brings us out of a new Israel, a new creation. He steps out of the tomb, having been that Passover lamb. He raises us up. He brings us to the Red Sea of Satan, sin, and death, and the wrath of God that he propitiates for us, and he brings us out of the grave as new creatures, as unleavened, sincere, truth-loving, purity-loving, God-loving, Christ-loving people. That's what Jesus does. As the Passover lamb. You know, it's interesting to me, too, that when you look at all the details of the Passover and then think about Jesus and what he's done, that that lamb is sufficient. That you are to feed on that lamb. That you are to feast on that lamb. That you are to eat that lamb with haste. You are to feed on Jesus Christ by faith. Always. Fully. You are to feast on him. You are to... Eat his flesh and drink his blood by faith. You are to devour the Passover sacrifice. You are to imbibe everything about Jesus Christ and get everything out of it, even with the bitter herbs that it cost him at the cross, the bitter herbs that went on that Passover lamb. You are to now eat and be nourished. And I love, I love how in Exodus 12, Moses writes that if the house is too small for the lamb, they should share that lamb with other houses, that there's plenty of Christ. You're never going to out-feed on Christ. You're never going to run out of Christ. Christ is the Passover lamb. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ becomes unclean. Have you ever thought about this? For something unclean to become clean, something clean has to become dirty. For something unclean to become clean and we by nature are unclean something clean jesus has to become unclean when he touches the leper he didn't become a leper but he became a leper at calvary when he healed the woman with the flow of blood who was unclean who couldn't come to temple worship for 12 years because of her flow of blood and and jesus heals her he didn't get a flow of blood right then and there he got it at the cross he became unclean he took her uncleanness 
He takes our uncleanness. He takes our sin. He takes our leaven on himself, and that is dealt with on him, the clean one, the just one, becoming the unjust one at the cross, dealt with as a sinner, so that we might be delivered and redeemed and purified and made unleavened. And notice that's exactly what Paul says. He says, look, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Let us there celebrate the festival, not by doing a Seder meal here at New Covenant, but every day feeding on Jesus. And every day, notice what he says, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the new leaven of sincerity and truth. Keep the feast. You keep the feast by feeding on Jesus and living as his people. You keep the feast. Every day is Passover for us. Every day of your life is Passover. Every day ought to be marked out by us being unleavened in sincerity and truth. Now, finally, Paul does something very interesting. In verse 9 and following, he will now talk about the attitude of those in the church toward those inside and those outside. And there's a very interesting dynamic here, and I don't want you to miss this, because it would be very easy to take the teaching about church discipline and then to go around and try to be heavy-handed with everybody you meet in every sphere to become an isolationist and to just worry about me and my little corner and just I'll be unleavened over here in my corner and, and I won't deal with people and I'll just isolate myself. And, you know, far too often the church is good at isolating rather than purifying, purging, and going out and reaching the lost. The church is so good at isolating and so bad so often as at purifying within and going out to reach the lost. And notice what Paul does. He distinguishes between two groups of people. He distinguishes between those of this world, unbelievers, and those in the church. And he says in verse 9, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. That means if you know a brother or a sister who claims to be a brother or sister, and their life is openly contrary to that, you are not to learn their ways. You are not to fellowship with them. Now, they are objects of evangelism once they're excommunicated. That's an interesting dynamic. Once they're out of the church, then they're objects of evangelism. But in the church, Paul says, avoid spending time with people that are living in open, unrepentant sin. And for the fear of danger of saying, okay, well, I'll just stay away from all the homosexuals and all of the adulterers out there and all of the, the really greedy swindlers out there, and I'll just isolate myself, Paul says, no, wait, wait, wait. I'm not telling you not to eat with the sexually immoral of this world or the drunkards of this world or the covetous and greedy of this world. There's an expectation that you will be eating with them for the sake of the gospel. There's an expectation that we will know people in the world and, and be pursuing them for the gospel. Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners and ate and drank with them. And he was so full of grace and truth that they were drawn to him. He didn't dismiss their sin. He didn't learn their ways, but he was with them. Now, Paul's going to say, distinguish. Distinguish between those in the world and those that are in the church. And notice what he says to sum it up at the end. He says, what have I to do judging outsiders? I mean, what, what good does that mean, do for me to be like, judge you, judge you, judge you, judge you outside? Obviously, God's going to judge them. Paul's saying God's going to judge them. There's a judgment day. They're going to hell for eternity if they don't repent of their sins. God is going to judge them. 
It's not my job to sit around and judge them from here. It's my job to pursue them with the gospel. And Paul says, it's not my job, job to judge those. He said, outside, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. God will pronounce judgment on all men. And so I think there's an attitude adjustment we need to have as the church, and that attitude is, instead of sitting back and talking about everything that's wrong with the unbelieving world out there, we ought to be first and foremost focused on what's wrong with me, my heart personally, the sin in my heart, whoever you are, and then what's going on in our church. Is our church a healthy, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, holiness-pursuing church? And then we ought to be pursuing people out there. Do you see how easy it is for the church to just be heaping condemnation on an unbelieving world? I have a friend. I love, I love my friend because he always provokes me and things I say and things I think about. And I remember one time he said, you know, Nick, the church gets so surprised about how people in the world act. He's like, they're unbelievers. They're going to do that. Don't be surprised about that. That's not justifying it. That's saying that's what unbelievers do. Unbelievers do the things Paul says. Believers don't do those things, shouldn't do those things. If we do those things, we repent and we're cleansed. So I think that there is a paradigm shift here, and there's a lot that we've taken in this morning for us to consider about the nature of church discipline, the purposes of church discipline, the call to purge the camp, the understanding of the holiness and consecration of the camp through Jesus Christ. I want to just leave you with one application. I want you to examine yourselves against this, to ask, where am I? Where am I on these things? Where am I in living a life of holiness? Where am I in pursuing the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth? Where am I in knowing and believing that Jesus is my Passover lamb and feeding on him and devouring that wonderful, gracious, salvation-begetting sacrifice of Jesus? Where am I on being interested in seeing the church of Jesus purified? Where am I on seeking the lost who are outside? Am I isolating myself? Those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And, you know, I believe that when we do this, it feels constrictive. It feels like it's going to be a lot of work. God will bless his church. I can tell you that emphatically, that God is honored when his church is obedient to what he has committed in his church through Jesus Christ. I can tell you that because Paul says when church discipline is affected, it is affected in the name of and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is present as the King and the Head and the Savior of his church. I hope that you guys will study this more, will meditate on these things, and will pursue them in your lives. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for these instructions, for the upkeep and care of your church, the camp of the Lord. We pray Our God, that you would drive these things deeply within us, that you would open our minds and our hearts to them, that you would cause us to delight in them, that, Lord, where there's areas of our lives, uh, maybe secret sin, hidden sin, tolerated sin, that, Lord, you would give us resolution to mortify that through the gospel. 
that, Lord Jesus, you would be merciful to New Covenant Presbyterian Church, that we would be a pure church and a church that loves to do things your way, a church that loves to care for um, the needs of the body and wants to see you exalted, Lord Jesus, and wants to, to know that, that we have been passed over and that we have been redeemed to be a glorious church without spot and wrinkle or any such thing. Father, we pray that you would give us a greater zeal and outreach toward the lost, those outside the camp, that you would give us love for the lost, that you would give us prayer and zeal to get the gospel to them. We pray that you would give us more opportunities this week ahead, Father, that you would help us to balance that call in our attitude and our commitments to those outside and within. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive us for all the ways that we fail. We pray these things in your name. Amen.